you walked up and down the neighborhood where you live and you asked 10 different neighbors their opinion on any political issue, how many different opinions are you going to get? 12? 15, right? I mean, that's just part of living in 21st century America, right? We all have our different views about everything. Uh, You ask them about abortion, all sorts of different perspectives. Ask them about capital punishment, all sorts of different perspectives. Ask them about President Trump, but you don't have three hours, so don't ask them about President Trump. You don't know what your neighbors think about that. You get the idea. Tons of views on tons of issues. And here's the thing I want to kind of set right off the bat today is something we kind of need to realize. When you've got a group of people who have very different opinions about a certain thing, that is a pretty good indicator that that group does not know the truth, right? If you got a group of people, right, uh, say there's a room of 15 people and there is uh, one chair missing in the room, only 14 chairs, right? 15 people, 14 chairs. They're trying to figure out what happened to our 15th chair in our Sunday school class. And one person says, well, I think the janitor came in and took it last week. And another person says, no, no, I think we only asked for 14 chairs and that's why there's only 14 chairs. And another person chimes in and says, well, actually, I think there were only supposed to be 14 of us here. Who isn't supposed to be here that's here, right? All these different opinions, right? You know one thing about that room. Nobody knows what happened to the 15th chair, right? That's why we're having all these disagreements. That's why we're having all this discussion because we don't know the truth. And that's something we've got to realize about the nation around us and about ourselves as well. If there's this myriad of perspectives on everything, it's because we don't know the truth when it comes to these things. We've lost our bearing on what could be true and what could be false in society. And so we come up with this idea and that idea and my feelings tell me this and so I feel this way about this issue and that way about that issue. We may be confident about our political views, but that doesn't mean that we are any wiser about them. And that's led to the division that we see today. I say that because into the confusion that is us and is this world around us, sometimes the Bible speaks very clearly to hot button issues. And when it does, we thank God that it does because we cannot wade through this sea by ourselves. There's no way if there are 20 perspectives on one issue and 10 perspectives on another, there's no way you're getting the one in 20 shot right on one and the one in 10 shot right. That's like one in 200 odds you're gonna be right on both of them. We can't figure this stuff out. We need our shepherd to guide us. And so we've gotta look this morning to the word and say, Lord, we sacrifice our feelings about political issues. We sacrifice our opinions and thoughts about political issues. And we trust you, Lord. We know we will not make it to green pastures unless our good shepherd guides us. So we set that in its place before we look to two hot button issues in our culture, two issues on which I bet this room has a myriad of different views and the people around us have even more views. You probably saw on your bulletin, you may see it on the screens now, we're talking about capital punishment this morning and we are talking about eating meat and those are two things that our culture cannot agree on. We'll address both of them straight from the Bible this morning. Now, 
If you're new with us, or if you don't follow Jesus, uh, I want to explain to you what we're doing here. We do this every Sunday. Uh, Everything that we believe is grounded on one truth called the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's a very simple but very profound truth that Jesus was God, made man, and that he died and rose to offer forgiveness to sinners. That if you need to be forgiven of your sin, which you do, you can't earn it, you can't do right, you can't listen to the Lord's words and follow them enough to make yourself right, but the one thing that can be done has been done for you. Jesus died to pay for your sin. So by believing in him, you can have life in his name, forgiveness, eternal life, a new heart that wants to follow in God's ways. And you're sitting right now in a room with a lot of people who have done just that, who have trusted in Jesus, who believe in him and have found life in his name. And God's given us new hearts that now want to walk in his ways. And so we search through the word and we say, Lord, what do you want us to do? What do I need to change about what I am doing? So as we look at some moral principles and some strong beliefs in the Bible this morning, I wanna make sure you know that those aren't the end all and be all of what we preach. Those depend on the fact that the Lord saved us from our sins and now we want to follow him. Lately that's been looking like going through the book of Genesis as we have been. Last week we preached a sermon on five chapters in Genesis. Genesis I think six through ten, the whole story of the flood. This week we zoom in and we look at one little part of it. We're going to look at Genesis 9, 1 through 7. And we're going to find there the answers to the questions. Is it okay for someone who follows Jesus to eat meat? And is there ever a time when we should execute criminals? Two hard questions. Uh, As we look at them, though, I want to tell you the story that's led up to this. You may have heard the story of Noah and the flood, uh, the story of Noah's Ark, it's often called. Uh, This is the end of that story. So humanity had become just so wicked that the Lord chose to destroy all life on the planet, if you can fathom that, all animals and all people, except for eight people and a bunch of animals that he hid away on this ark, and everyone in the ark survived. So after this, uh, the floodwaters died down, the ark comes down to the ground, and there's like this new earth, right? God's recreated everything, and they walk out of this ark, and the whole new world is like theirs for the taking, right? And so they're looking out at it. The eight of them are going to repopulate humanity, and as they look at this new creation, uh, God gives them some blessings, and God gives them some rules that apply to all of humanity, all of Noah's descendants, which include us as well. Here are those words, Genesis 9, 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all of the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth abundantly and multiply it. The words of the Lord. 
So as the human race is populated then, repopulated, uh, every person in this room and in this nation, in this world is a descendant of Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives. Uh, As that world is then repopulated, the Lord gives them these words both as a blessing and as rules. And uh, there are a couple of big picture things that I need to tell you before we get into the specifics of it. Uh, The first big picture thing is that these words are for all of humanity. And we know that because they are given to now the new head of humanity before he repopulates the whole earth. This is a a humanity thing. And that is important because sometimes the Lord gives rules that are just for Christians, right? Like how to structure the church. That's just for the church. You don't have to structure your business the same way we structure the church. Those are rules particular to us. Sometimes he gave a lot of laws to ancient Israel that were very particular to that nation. And if you're not an ancient Israelite, you don't have to follow those laws. But there are some things he says that apply to everybody, and this is one of those things. This is a rule, these are words and blessings for all of humanity. And that's important because one temptation that's on us right now is when we see something we don't like in the Old Testament, it's just our natural inclination to be like, nope, Old Testament doesn't apply, right? Like that's our favorite move when the Old Testament says something that we don't like. We don't do this based on any kind of common sense or what's going on in the story. It's all like, if I like it, it applies. And if I don't like it, then the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore, right? Like you're reading through and you're, it says, you know, do not murder. And you're like, okay, those are good laws. I like that law. And then it's like, bring your tithe to the storehouse. And we're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Old Testament doesn't apply anymore, right? It's tempting to do that here, right? If you've already got your views settled on this stuff, you're gonna come to it and the first thing you're gonna say is Old Testament doesn't apply anymore and just ignore the whole thing. And so I've gotta confront that. I've gotta say, no, no, let's look at what it says because the words are for all of humanity. So that's the first thing we gotta establish here. These words are for everybody. Not every word in the Bible is like that. These ones are because they're given to Noah and all of his descendants. And you can see that iterated many times in the next paragraph if you ever want to look down and see that. The other thing that we've got to set straight is why God has the right to say this. And this is something that we like even less. You see, this story of the flood shouts like through a megaphone something that we really don't like about God. And that is that God has the right to give life and God has the right to take life. And we are not comfortable with that. Now, this began in Genesis, right, when the animals get the breath of life. It began in chapters one and two. The animals get the breath of life. And how do they get the breath of life? God breathes the breath of life into them. And then he forms a man from the ground, and the man begins to breathe. How does humanity begin to breathe? Because God breathes the breath of life into us. So our life and our breath and the life of the animals and the breath of the animals comes straight from God. He's the giver of life. And if he's got the power to do that and the authority to do that, Well, the part we really don't like is that means he is allowed to take life whenever he pleases. And so sometimes we see the Lord do this in the Bible and we get pretty uncomfortable. Like he tells Joshua to destroy the entire nations of Canaan, everybody. And we're like, whoa, like 
Should he have done, well, he is the Lord, the giver of life, and he can do that. We see a disaster on TV, and this sense of justice like rises up in us. Right? How, how could the Lord let those people die? He should not have done that. And some people want to call God a moral monster for some of these things, and we miss that he is the giver of life, and therefore he is the one who can take life as well. That's the, the role that he plays, and what makes that pride come crashing down in us is when we read that humanity had grown wicked and so the Lord freely chose to flood the whole planet and he never apologized for it. He said, I did that and I can do that. Why can he do that? Because he gave the breath of life to every one of those people. Now you see this kind of logic where, you know, we want to be the giver and taker of life. Like we're the one who gets mad at God and tries to judge God when he gives and takes life in a way that we don't want. You see this in our political movements as well. You have a whole movement that thinks that it somehow empowers women to give them authority of whether their unborn child dies or not. They're, and they're calling it women's empowerment. This is a women's movement for them. It has nothing to do with the fact that God gave life to that child. No reverence for that, but instead, I want to be empowered. I want to be the one who decides which child lives and which child dies, and I get to do that. You see this in another movement, a very different movement that's called the the Death with Dignity movement. This is a movement that teaches that it somehow gives you more dignity to choose the day that you die in the hospital than to just let your life pass when the Lord takes it from you. And the idea is, if I can choose the time and date well, at least that gives me the dignity when I go of being the one that decided it was time to go. Well, the Lord says, I give life, right? And I take life. And we don't get to jump into that game and meddle into that game. So we have to resist the urge to like armchair quarterback God here and say we would do a better job of deciding who lives and who dies. We have to leave these things to the Lord because he is the one that gives life and he is the one that takes life. Uh, this, this desire in us to, to kind of be God and choose who lives and dies, that's why we have opinions about these issues. That's why we have opinions about capital punishment, because we think that we ought to be the ones deciding who gets to live and who gets to die. But the story of the flood just demolishes that when God says, I decide, I choose, and I don't answer to anybody when I do it. So, This word will probably confront what some of you believe about capital punishment, what some of you believe about eating meat, but before it does that, it has to confront something else. Uh, The thing we have to get straight first is that our opinions about capital punishment and eating meat do not matter. Why? Because we didn't give life to anybody. The Lord gives life and he takes it away. So we have to look at his word and say, okay, Lord, what what do you want us to do? Because it is you who is in charge here. Now, let me bring this to life in one way with just a a really heartbreaking story that that a a family friend of Emily and I is going through right now. Now, you knew if we were going to talk about people dying and animals dying, it was going to get heartbreaking at some point. Fair warning, this is the point. Um, We, Emily and I have two family friends. You know, we're in that stage of life where, you know, we're having babies and we're raising babies and our friends around us are having babies. And a number of them have had a hard time getting pregnant. Some of them have gotten pregnant and then faced tragedy while they were pregnant. Uh, Two different friends of ours are young 
young mothers who uh, have, have born children, but also have had a, one of those pregnancies where a month or two in, you learn that the baby will not survive very many days out of your womb. I don't know if maybe some of you have been through that and my heart breaks for you. Uh, so about 10 years ago, one friend of ours went through that, carried the baby full term, gave birth to the baby, held it for less than a day, and then had to let it go home to the Lord. Uh, and then some other friends of ours have been going through this for the past several months. And in this particular scenario, uh, her doctor was just pressuring her, uh, saying essentially, like, look, when my work here is done, the baby won't be alive. Like, the baby's not surviving this. You need to let me take the baby's life now to spare you the psychological stress, the physical stress on your body. You don't need to go through that. What's the difference in, in whether I take its life now or whether it dies close to its birth? There's no difference in the outcome. So just let me finish this now for you. And the mother was just having to push back and push back and could not get this doctor's support. And the question just came down to, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between letting the doctor take the baby's life now and letting things happen as the Lord would let them happen. And finally, she had to just say, no, you don't choose when my baby dies. You don't get to decide when this baby lives and when this baby dies, and you don't get to decide to take life. The difference is the difference between the Lord taking a life, which he can do, and a doctor taking a life, which he cannot do, or she cannot do. So, this principle that God gives life, God takes life, uh, it, it hits real life many ways, often in tragic waves because it involves people and animals dying. But we must look to what the Lord says and, and build these principles on it. So that's one way that it comes to life. Uh, two other ways it will come to life, uh, the Lord talks about here in these verses. Let's look at just what they say. First thing it says is in verses two through four, uh, and it just says very plainly uh, that the Lord gives us animals for food. Uh, here's what it says, verse two. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky, everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant, only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood. So the way we're gonna build on that foundation then, if God is the one who proclaimed through this story of the flood that he gives and takes life, the way that we're then building on that is we are saying there is only one scenario in which you can take an animal's life or take a human's life. And that is when God says, right? He's the giver and taker. He's the authoritative one. So if he says, then you can. And if he does not say, then you cannot. And he gives the first words right here. This is the only reason that we are allowed to kill animals, that we are allowed to have slaughterhouses, and we are allowed to eat meat because he says it right here. He says, first, that animals will naturally be afraid of us, right? And you've probably seen that play out in your life. You come across an animal in the woods or anywhere, and often it's naturally going to be afraid of you. Uh, well, that's why, because God said, God gave us that blessing as part of our dominion over the earth. And then he says, into your hand they are given. 
That is why around this time of year, uh, some of you can wake up really early in the morning and put on your special outfit that you only wear a couple of times a year and go out into the woods and arm yourself with a bow or with a good rifle. And though the deer are afraid of you, you can still hunt them down and you can still prevail over them. Why are you able to do that? The reason you can do that, if you got a deer this year, the reason you were able to do it is because of these words right here, into your hand they are given. The Lord gave you that ability to do that. And not only that, but he gave you permission to do that. He says, you are allowed to do this. I give life and I give you permission to do this. That's why we can do it. So did you get a deer this year or last year? Uh, Did you catch any fish this year? Did you get any ducks this year? (laughs) My son's nodding. He did catch a fish this year. Uh, (laughs) uh, Whatever you were able to do, it's because the Lord said, into your hand they are given. Uh, Then in verse 3, he says, not only are we allowed to hunt animals, uh, not only are we able to hunt animals, but we're also allowed to, to eat of them too. And for the whole race, the rule is any animal. There's not a restriction worldwide on you can eat these animals or you can eat those. Now, later on for the nation of Israel, there were some restrictions, but those do not apply for the whole race. I'll get into that in a little bit. Before this, it looks like we were allowed only to eat plants. And here, God, who makes the rules and can change them whenever he wants, he says, I changed the rules, you can eat animals now. But... In verse four, he puts the only restriction, and it's one that's like hard to understand. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. That's probably unclear. You're probably looking at that and thinking, oh no, is my pastor about to tell me I can't have steak? Like, this is not going to be good if I can't have rare steak. Well, what it, what it means is, you know, when an animal is killed, um, and you may have done this if you've gone hunting, um, one of the things we do is we drain the blood from the animal, either right as it's dying or just after it's dying. A lot of hunters in the woods, uh, they, when they get a deer, they will slit the throat of the deer and then tie up its back legs and hang it by its back legs to drain all of the blood out of the animal. And I know that sounds gross because we're not used to that. We don't have to do that ourselves very much anymore, so we're like, about it. But that every ancient Israelite, that would have made perfect sense to that because they were all very close to that process. And so what he's saying here is that that process of butchering, the process where the blood comes out of the animal, that is an important part of the process and we do need to do that. We don't eat the blood with the meat because there is something special about the blood. It's lifeblood is in it. And it would just be too barbaric if we were just like taking this blood and, and doing stuff with it. So the Lord puts that limit and says, no, we, we do not do that. Now, let me walk through how this looks for the rest of the Bible. Um, These rules are put on all humanity. We can eat animals, but but there's the blood thing. Um, Then the Lord forms one nation, Israel, and he says, I'll be your king, Israel. I'll make your laws. He gives them laws, and he gives them a lot of food laws that apply just to them. You can eat this animal, but not that animal. When you cook it, you got to cook it this way and not that way, and all sorts of things that show the purity of that nation, but aren't binding on every human on earth. It was just that nation. Uh, Then the Lord Jesus comes, like the Lord comes and he walks among us and he says some things that make people think, wait a minute, is he lifting the food laws? Like, can we eat any animal now? They weren't sure. Uh, And then he died and then he rose and then his church started to grow and people were really asking this question 
a lot. Like, do I have to follow Israel's laws if I want to follow Jesus? He was a Jew. Maybe I have to, maybe I have to be circumcised and follow the Jewish. I don't know. And people didn't know quite what to do. And so the Lord gave a vision to this guy, Peter, who was one of the apostles who spoke with authority for the church. Uh, and the vision very plainly said, all animals are clean now. You can eat any animal that you want to. And, and Peter, like, resists. He says, Lord, I haven't eaten an unclean animal in my whole life. And the Lord says, no, arise, kill, eat. You can do this now. I make all foods clean. So they get together in Jerusalem, all the leaders of the church, and they decide, okay, we've got to kind of come down on this. Do people have to follow the Israelite law or not? And the Spirit speaks to them and tells them all, no, you don't have to follow the law to follow Jesus. Uh, and they write letters to all the churches and send some guys to deliver them. And here's what the letters say. The letters say, uh, you don't have to be circumcised to follow Jesus. You don't have to follow the Israelite law, but you do have to do two things. Number one, abstain from sexual immorality. And number two, don't eat the blood with the meat. Like it was that important that this little restriction here about the blood with the meat stayed even through the New Testament church and is still binding on us today. And the profound thing is that back in Israel's day, the other nations didn't have laws that required them to do that. They could eat the blood right with the meat. But today, all the nations in the West, this is how we slaughter our animals. Slaughterhouse practices involve, even here in the States, so far away, you drain the blood from the animal before you do anything else to it. That is the profound influence of the Bible on Western culture. Even little things like that are built on words like this. You can try to get away from God's word, but around here, you just can't get away from its influence. It just influences our cultures so much. So there are a couple of things, though, that we need to keep in mind. Uh, the first thing is um, people are going to ask, well, what about steak? Like I mentioned it earlier, right? Like if I'm eating like prime rib and there's like that pink stuff all over on the plate, like am I not allowed to do that? Well, fear not, my friends. That is not blood on your plate. Actually, we call it blood commonly, uh, but that's not what it is. It's a protein called myoglobin that is in red meat animals and much less of it is in white meat animals. That's why red meat animals are red and white meat animals are white. When it's cooked, it turns clear and brown in ways and that's why the color of meat tends to change when you do that. Uh, that's all because of that protein and it looks like blood on the plate, but that's actually not blood. So fear not, just grab a roll, sop that stuff up if you like it and just throw it back. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, there are a couple of things to look out for, though, um, because it would make sense, you know, if, if you're in the, the butchering industry and you don't know about laws like this, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus or, or you haven't read it or whatever, it would make sense that all of this blood would be drained out of the animal and one day it's going to occur to you, we're wasting all this. Like, I wonder if we can make other food taste better by doing stuff with it. And, and so sometimes we get these crazy ideas and one of them is called blood sausage. And what it is, is you, you grind up meat and spices and you just go ahead and take that bucket of blood from the draining thing and just pour that right in the batch too, mix it all together and put it in casings for sausage. And when you do that, you are literally eating the blood along with the meat. And people say it's delicious. Um, but when we see a clear word like this that says, but you shall not eat the blood along with the meat, we've got to look at stuff like that and say, you know what? I will pass on that. There are plenty of good things out there to eat that I don't need that. I will not eat the life with the meat. This also means something for how we see the Bible. Uh, imagine what life was like for Israel with us. Thousands of years, right? They're slaughtering animals. 
draining the blood because the life's in the blood. We can eat the meat, we can't eat the blood because the life's in the blood over and over again. The life is in the blood, we can't eat the blood. The life is in the blood, we can't eat the blood. Okay, you got millennia of that, thousands of years of that for generation after generation. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life in you. That's gonna stir up some controversy, right? That puts some force behind Jesus' words there because they have for thousands of years been told not to drink the blood of the animals. And later on, he's gonna stand up at the Last Supper and I bet the disciples were like nodding along when he, he brings the bread out and says, this is my body broken for you. And they're probably like, yeah, okay, a little weird, but yeah, when he lifts up that cup and says, this is my blood shed for you, take and drink, it must have just blown their minds. And that is what makes the Lord's Supper different from any supper you have ever had. You can eat the flesh of an animal and get nourishment and be full for hours or even for a day. But when you come to the Lord and you put your faith in his blood that was shed for you, you have a life. Not nourishment that fades, life eternally because the life is in the blood. So this means so much for the gospel and so much for the call that is upon us to follow the one who shed his blood for us. When he comes back, it looks like we will probably stop eating meat again. It'll be maybe back like it was in the garden where we eat fruit, I'm not sure. But uh, we know that we didn't eat meat in the garden. We just, you know, there was no death there, right? We just ate freely from the trees and we didn't seem to miss it. Uh, we also know that when he comes back, there will be a great feast, but there will also not be death anymore. And so at the very least, there will be a supply problem, maybe even much more than that. Uh, but we do know this, he says, when I come back, he lifts that cup and he says, I will drink this cup anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so what we have to look forward to, ironically, is a great feast that's great because he's there. Uh, and it's mysterious, we don't fully understand it, but all I can tell you is that feasting with Jesus when he comes back will be better than eating prime rib is today. It'll be better than eating steak is today. And I cannot wait. So that's what the first part means for us. We can eat meat for now. We must drain the blood from the animal. That's important. Uh, I imagine in this room there is majority opinion on that one. I know that enough of you are into grilling that we probably are on the same page on that one. Uh, but now we're gonna get into one where even churches disagree, even Christians in the same church disagree, and that's capital punishment. Um, different churches and denominations have different stated perspectives on it. The United Methodist Church, where I grew up, uh, they put capital punishment in the same category as torture. And they say it's just not humane in any government to ever execute a prisoner. And so they call for the abolition of capital punishment on all nations in the world. Uh, the Catholic Church takes a more middle stance. They say, well, if you have to, it's permissible. Uh, but if you can keep the person safely behind bars and keep the 
public safe from them for their whole life. It is better and more in keeping with human dignity uh, to let them live out their life in prison. Uh, the Baptist Church has a statement on it that it, we aren't required to believe it. It's just one of those we voted on it together, so most of us believe in it, uh, that calls for capital punishment in cases of murder and treason. Those are the only two things that the, the Baptist Church supports it in. Uh, it sounds like the justice system in America really comes down to almost the, the burden on the taxpayer. I mean, the appeals process is 20 to 30 years when an execution is determined. And you can imagine all these appeals going to court over and over again, the great cost of that to the taxpayer. There are a lot of times where a jury will just say, you know, it's too, this person may deserve this, but it's too much of a burden financially on us to go through the whole process. And so we'll just, you know, out of prudence, just, just give them a life sentence instead. It seems to be very practical what we're doing in our country, but the Lord speaks to it clearly. And remember, our opinion on who deserves to live and who deserves to die does not matter. Our feelings, I don't want to sound insensitive, but your feelings don't matter on this issue at all. Uh, the Lord has spoken and when he speaks, he's the giver of life and so we listen to him. So here's what he says in verses five and six. He says, surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it. And from every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So he says, from every man, every man's brother, I will require the life of man, which I imagine probably sounds a little awkward, like the, the wording and the pace of that probably doesn't, maybe doesn't feel right. The reason is that Moses intentionally inserted the word brother here. And the reason he did that is the last time he said the word brother was in the story of Cain and Abel. And you might remember when we talked about that, uh, he put the word brother in the story seven times exactly, and the word Abel seven times, and Cain's name 14 times exactly. He's really careful about when he puts words and when he doesn't. There's all kinds of poetry and beauty in it. And then he does not use the word brother, even though he talks about brothers, never calls them that, for several chapters until we get here, and he says the word brother again, in a spot where it kind of feels weird for him to say that. Well, the reason is he's calling to mind that story of Cain and Abel and that violence that is on all of our hearts that, oh yeah, the world's first born human killed the world's second born human. Like we, we really have a lot, of, we would even kill our own brother. And so as we recall that story and the violence that's in our hearts, God, the giver of life, just lays a clear law down. Violence had gone all over the earth and he says, if you murder someone, I will require your life from you. That's the law he lays down for us. And then in verse six, he says, how? He says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Now again, when is the only time when we're allowed to kill an animal or kill a human? When God says so. That is the only time we are allowed to do it. And right here, he says, this is how I want it done. He commissions us. You are to execute those who commit murder for me. If someone takes the life of one of my image-bearing humans, he says, I commission you, humanity, to take that person's life from them on my honor. Now, 
Positions against capital punishment tend to emphasize the dignity of life, and rightly so. There's great dignity in life. And religious positions against it will emphasize the sacredness of human life, right? Like this person's life is, is holy. They're made in God's image. We can't take their life from them. And inasmuch as they are emphasizing the sanctity of human life, they are right. But what we can miss here is that that is why God commands it here. You can follow the logic with me. Look in verse six for that word for. You can see right there. I think verse six even begins with the word for. Yeah, uh, no, it's the second part of verse six. You see the word for there. For in the image of God, he made man, right? So that first pair of lines, whoever sheds man's blood by man should his blood be shed. The reason why is because he made man in God's image because of the sanctity of life, because of the holiness of human life. The Lord says, this is why I am commissioning you to do it. So something we would use as an argument not to do it, the Lord says that is actually why you should do it, because I made them in my image. Others will oppose this because we oppose vengeance, right? And the Lord tells us, right, don't take vengeance on others. Like, we're not to do that. Uh, it says to love our enemies, not to avenge ourselves. And so the logic would be then, many people will say this, hey, look, the point of the law is not to take vengeance on these people. It's to keep the rest of us safe. It's to rehabilitate criminals. Uh, we're not trying to get vengeance because Jesus teaches us not to have vengeance on others. And to clear that up, up, what we have to do is look at the verses that teach that very principle. And so I'm, I'm going to look there. If you want, turn with me to uh, Romans 12, 19. We'll try to put it up on the screens as well. This is one of the places where we are taught not to take vengeance on others. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so the idea here is that if someone were to, in just the most tragic of situations, someone were to murder your spouse or your child or someone that you love, you cannot avenge their death. You're not allowed in any circumstances to do that. But then there's a reason, that word for is there again. For, the Lord says, you aren't to take vengeance because vengeance is mine, he says. I will repay. So the reason the Lord tells us not to take vengeance on others is because we have to leave room for him to do it. Like the advice is get out of the way because the Lord will be taking vengeance and you and your limited power cannot add to the Lord's vengeance. Whatever you would try to do would be puny compared to what it says, the wrath of God that we leave room for. So with like respect for that gravity of God's great wrath, we say, okay, I don't have to take vengeance on this person for what they did. I don't have to do this. But the reason then is because of what the Lord even said there in Genesis, I will require the lifeblood of someone who sheds blood. He does take vengeance. And when we look at the next chapter of Romans, we see how he does it. It's outlined a little more clearly. He commissions humanity to do it. And the way he does that is not through like gang vengeance deaths or, or any of that kind of stuff. It's through the the government working with the sword. Flip the page, Romans 13, 1, and you'll see it there. We'll put that on the screens for you too. The same apostle Paul writes, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, 
Whoever resists the authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation for themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear to good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for your good. But if you do evil, be afraid. And here's where the principle comes in right here. This is a big part. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So this is one of the roles of government in a just society. God is just and vengeful. We are not to be as people, but God is. And one way he exercises his justice and his vengeance is through the government, through the sounding of a gavel on a judge's desk that says guilty and condemned. Through that, God often exercises his own judgment. So what he is setting up here is people through formal government going through a due process and bringing justice on those who murder his image bearers. He will not stand for murder. So to sum it up then, a just government should execute those who murder God's image bearers. This is the word the Lord has, I think, for many of us today. Many people will add treason to that, and the logic is if you commit treason, you're knowingly killing many of your countrymen, and so it's, it's a form of murder. The logic checks out, though I don't think the Bible speaks super clearly to it. It's good logic, at least. Uh, this means a few things for us, though. It means something in the voting booth, right? So we have a role as Americans in setting up a just society here. We've got a part in that. And every November, we go to the ballot and we check things. And our job is to bear that sword for a day and vote justly and set up a just government. Now, we need wisdom to get all the particulars right, but we at least have from this one principle from God's word. This is something he wants in a just government. And so it is something we should work for when we are in the ballot box, when we are voting. But we must leave it to wisdom to figure out just how that works out on some of these particular measures. Secondly, there's a chance that one of us in this room will serve on a jury in the next year. We have that role in the government as well. And there's a small chance that one of us might serve on a jury one day for a capital offense and we'll actually have to be one of the peers of the person who chooses whether or not they are condemned. And that is a weighty, can you imagine the fear that that would put in my heart to know that I'm responsible for deciding if this person lives or dies? Um, in moments of fear like that, you need to know where to turn in the Bible. Like when it is on you like that, now you know. Genesis 9, Romans 12, Romans 13, turn there, pull your principles from there, and you might be part of building a just government for us. So those are two ways we can acknowledge God as the giver of life every day, by remembering the God who gave us meat to eat and by working toward a just society where human life is honored and God's image is honored. God is the giver of life and he is the taker of life. So let us say then, along with his servant Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray.